Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, I visit with Trish Rifo, partner at Wilmer & Snell and immediate past president of the American Bar Association. We talk about a recent article she penned for the ABA magazine, Lawyers in the Public Square. It's a really fascinating exploration of the duties of lawyers and how we have to be advocates for moral civility and respect in the public square. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I have with me Trish Rifo. Trish is a very longtime dear friend. We went to law school together. And uh, Trish, first of all, welcome. And thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Hey, I'm delighted to be here. And it's fun to, to see you and reconnect with somebody I've known that long. We don't need to say exactly how many decades it's been, right? Trish, you uh, just... Uh, uh, became the immediate past president of the American Bar Association. Uh, you were the president of the American Bar Association during the pandemic. So I was wondering if I could start off by asking you uh, to tell us a little bit more about your professional background and what are you up to these days? Sure. So um, as as you know, because you were there in the room where it happened, I graduated from the University of Michigan Law School and started my practice in um, Chicago at Jenner & Block. Uh, stayed there for, um, what, 13 years, met uh, my now husband actually at an American Bar Association meeting, which we always joke is either really sweet or kind of sad, depending on how you think about it. Uh, And he was in Phoenix and his kids were in Phoenix. So there was no arm wrestling over uh, if we were going to do this marriage thing where we were going to do it. So I moved to Phoenix, what, 25 years ago now, and uh, have been practicing commercial litigation at Snell and Wilmer here in Phoenix ever since, and staying active and busy in the American Bar. Association. Trish, uh, the reason for this podcast, though, is what I thought was an excellent article you penned in the August-September edition of the ABA magazine entitled "Lawyers in the Public Square." So, if I could start with, uh, why did you write this article? You know, Tom. As the year progressed um, in which I was serving as ABA president and all of the challenges and issues that our country faced uh, during this particular year, I just increasingly became of the view that we needed to say something to our own profession about what we should expect of ourselves. And so I wrote the article because... To me, um, lawyers should hold themselves to the highest standards, 
not the lowest standards. Um, we shouldn't be approaching what we do from a what can I get away with standpoint, but rather from the standpoint of I am now a member of a learned profession that has the privilege of engaging in self-governance. And with that privilege comes, I believe, a responsibility for all of us to uphold the behavior that we should model for others to um, you know, uphold as well. I mean, some of this has been talked about, of course, for years and just in the context of civility in the courtroom. Um, and certainly that is important, but it seemed to me we'd had some instances in which lawyers were just behaving badly, um, badly regardless of whether or not they actually violated disciplinary rules, but just engaging in conduct that I didn't think was the best sort of conduct that any person, let alone an officer of the court, should engage in. I have to say that's what really struck me about the article was uh, it was a discussion about lawyers' civility towards each other, but then you made a pivot that I thought it made it particularly powerful, which was to model civility and respect in the broader society and in the public square. So why is it so important that we take that civility that we owe each other as professional colleagues and maybe turn that to the public? That was what really intrigued me. My, uh, my father used to always say words to the effect of um, everywhere you go, you take the repo name with you, right? And you've got to behave in a way that reflects well on your name. Um, to me, this is an outgrowth of the same concept. Lawyers, I think, are recognized often as lawyers, no matter where we are, whether we're in our places of worship or in our grocery store or on the softball field with our kids or whatever. We are lawyers and people know we are lawyers. And so when we misbehave, then I believe that runs the risk of reflecting on badly on who our profession is. So it's for that reason that I thought it was appropriate to remind all of us as lawyers that behaving well and doing the right thing in all of our conduct is, to me, part and parcel of the responsibility that we have as officers of the court. So that was really the point I was trying to, to get across, that we can't, whether we're in a partisan environment or we're in um, some other environment that maybe isn't even directly law-related, we nonetheless have a responsibility to um, comport ourselves in a way that brings credit to our profession. You also wrote about the need for lawyers to engage in self-examination. And I think there have been calls for self-examination uh, in lawyers' conduct with other lawyers. But does your call for self-examination really expand into, as you call it, the public square as well? Well, it does to me. Um, I was trying to get all of us to think about um, from a professional standpoint, you know, how do we uh, how do we comport ourselves? Whether, um, as I said, whether you're in the grocery store or on the softball field with your kids, all of these are uh, experiences in which we have the opportunity to choose who we are uh, and how we want to present ourselves. 
We are examples as lawyers, not only to um, our communities, but to the people we interact with on a daily basis. Uh, the more that we can, for example, model the, the, the behavior that says, even though you and I disagree on a particular issue, uh, the fact that we disagree on that issue says nothing about who you are as a human being. The more we can model that, the more we can be part of helping our society to move back toward a place where we can talk our way through challenges and disagreements instead of shouting at one another and calling one another names and making assumptions about the character of another human being because they happen to disagree with me on an issue that I care about. That was really the point that I was trying to get to. Lawyers are uniquely suited to arguing with one another, but doing it in a way um, that allows us, we hope, to still be able to go out after court and have a beer together. That's what we're trained to do. So let's take that training and use it in other aspects of our lives and do our part to try and heal some of the deep wounds that we are experiencing. Trish, right you pointed to uh, 2021 ABA Medal honoree Larry Fox, unfortunately no relation to Tom Fox, as discussing ethics requires more from lawyers and more than simply avoiding uh, violations of the law. Why do you think uh, that was so important or is so important? Well, I mean, to me, the disciplinary rules are the lowest rung on the ladder. Of course, every lawyer should comply with and adhere to the disciplinary rules. But um, Larry Fox's point um, was that that is a minimum standard. So when he's uh, a wonderful lawyer who's done all sorts of terrific things over um, over years, but he, when he was chair of the ABA section of litigation, he did a program called Ethics Beyond the Rules. And he brought in people from other disciplines who looked at how lawyers analyze ethics issues and suggested precisely what I'm saying, that you need to go beyond um, what the rules require. For example, as I recall, there was a priest, there was a teacher, right? There were other people who deal with ethics issues who would occasionally listen to how lawyers think about solving ethics issues from a, can I get away with it if I do it this way standpoint. And he was saying in substance that there's way more to it than that. Doing the right thing is sometimes a bigger and more complicated question than can I do this without violating the disciplinary rules? And it has stuck with me all of those years. And I think it's an important lesson for all of us as lawyers to internalize, to remind ourselves that just because I can do something doesn't mean that I should, that those are two completely different questions. Trish, another individual you cited too was uh, a gentleman named John Boma. I hope I got that right. Uh, why did you cite to him, and why was he Bauma? Why was he such a powerful influence on you as well? So John Bauma um, was uh, a boy raised in Pocahontas, Iowa, 
who graduated from the University of Iowa Law School and wound his way to Phoenix, um, where he became part of and then was the chairman for decades of my law firm, Snell and Wilmer. John was one of the amazing lawyers who was at one and the same time a giant in the legal community, a giant in his community, and a giant in the organized bar. Um, you know, the, the generation Tom ahead of us had a few of those. Um, there are fewer and fewer uh, today who have all three um, pieces of the world in which they are so engaged. So John not only was uh, an outstanding lawyer and the chairman of an outstanding law firm, but, you know, when the leaders of uh, our community needed help to solve problems, they turned to John. Um, he was a state bar president. He was president of the Western States Bar Conference, served on the ABA Board of Governors. You know, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, and I learned so much from the privilege of having the opportunity to both work with him on cases and work with him some in, in matters relating to the organized bar. Uh, he, he really was a giant. And one of the points that I made in the, in the column was that John spent his professional life making friends out of worthy adversaries. Um, his entire modus operandi was to find the good in someone, to always be civil, to use his um, relationships and the power of those relationships to advance his clients' interests and to serve his community. Um, I never heard him um, be uncivil toward anybody in any context. That just wasn't who he was. And yet, he became one of the most powerful lawyers I've ever had the privilege to know. So he taught me that being an extraordinary human being um, is completely coextensive with being an extraordinary lawyer. Um, and we lost him just as uh, I was becoming president-elect of the American Bar Association. Unfortunately, I would have loved deeply to have had him at my side and to be my counsel during this past year. So I, I tried to channel him. So Tristan, I'd like to now turn to the American Bar Association itself. And it, it occurs to me uh, after I read your article, and it occurs to me even more now after visiting with you, that the role of the ABA is perhaps even more important now than it's ever been. Um, and how can the, uh, the ABA help lead us in this self-examination of both lawyer professionalism to lawyers, but also in the public square? Um, great question, Tom. And, and you know that the ABA is, because we're the largest voluntary organization of lawyers and legal professionals in the world, it is a big and sometimes unwieldy beast. That is both its wonder and on occasion its challenge. But so there are all kinds of pieces of the American Bar Association that are thinking about and, and addressing these kinds of issues. Um, obviously, the American Bar Association writes um, in the first instance the model rules. So we play a role in talking about what what is the lowest standard, right? The, the, the don't break the rules standard. 
Um, but we also have any number of organizations who are constantly part of this conversation. This conversation about what do we as lawyers owe to our society and to one another uh, in our behavior. So um, there are uh, lawyer group. I mean, all of our sections and divisions have programming uh, and committees that talk about these kinds of issues. There are um, groups that are working on addressing standards and things that are less than um, the disciplinary rules uh, on these kinds of issues. It, it's a the strength of the American Bar Association is that it is a great forum for the lawyers of America um, and lawyers from elsewhere in the world, too, to come together to talk about the issues of the day. And this is one of the issues of the day for sure. So you've worked in uh, two uh, very high prestigious, well thought of firms, one in Chicago and one in Phoenix. How can law firms help uh, engage in uh, this effort and this discussion? I'm really worried about this piece of our law firm life, Tom, because of COVID right now. Because if you think about it, the, the stories that I was just sharing about the impact that John Bauma had on me, those stories and that learning derived from being with him. It derived from sitting in his office and watching him deal with other lawyers and opposing counsel and tell clients sort of, no, I'm not going to do it that way. And all the other things that he did to manifest the kinds of qualities that I was speaking about. I got to watch that live and in person. Um, one of the things that we need to be really careful about in this COVID moment, and frankly, as we come out of COVID, is to make sure that we are providing those opportunities to our youngest lawyers. Um, I don't know about you, but I learned a whole bunch about how to be a lawyer as a youngster and then as a sort of more grown-up lawyer by sitting in the office of somebody more senior to me and watching that somebody do his or her work. Um, that isn't happening as much in an in-person setting right now because so many of us aren't even in our offices yet uh, to be able to have those interactions. So we need to be really careful in all of our practice settings, to be intentional about passing on those kinds of um, teaching moments to our younger lawyers. You know, when I talked to law students last year as ABA president, one of the things that I emphasized repeatedly was the fact that when you become a lawyer, you're not just getting a job for Pete's sake right? You are joining a profession. And those that's an intangible um, that is hard to describe, but we as a profession need to pass those values on to our younger lawyers. And law firms are among the most important places where that kind of transfer of not just knowledge, but um, the sort of the folkways and the mores of what it means to be a lawyer are passed on. We'll be right back with more from Trish Rifo after a word from our sponsor. 
Trish, I would be personally remiss if I didn't take the chance to ask you about your tenure as ABA president. Uh, I can't think of a more tumultuous year to be the president, frankly. But I wanted to conclude with maybe what, what are the two or three top memorable things from your perspective, from your tenure as president, or, or what are you the most proud of? So it was a crazy time, uh, and I shared the crazy time with every state bar president, every local bar president, every international bar president, um, because all of us were sort of in this pickle together. None of us got the year that we intended or hoped for. Um, I am particularly proud of what the American Bar Association was able to do in the midst of COVID. Uh, And three things in particular I would point to. First off, we um, deepened our support for and connection with the Legal Services Corporation. Uh, and, you know, it has always been the number one legislative priority for the ABA to support additional funding for the Legal Services Corporation. We were um, able to accomplish that uh, with, with them this year and in, increased the funding and did everything else we could to support um, the Legal Services Corporation. And you will appreciate, Tom, that the, the coolest part of doing that was that at our big lobbying event in Washington for the Legal Services Corporation, which of course was virtual this year, um, we got Coach Jim Harbaugh from the University of Michigan to come and be interviewed. He's a giant supporter of the Legal Services Corporation. And of course, as a Michigan grad, it was a, a giant thrill to have the chance to interview him live on camera and we did a little go blue moment in, in support of LSC funding. So I was deeply proud of that. A second thing that we did um, was think about how basically to reinvent the office of the president of the ABA in the context of an entirely remote year. In a normal year, I would have been on the road 300 nights sleeping on a hotel pillow. Uh, obviously, that didn't happen. So how do you project the office of the president in a time when there are no in-person meetings for the president to go to. So we started from scratch and I was locked in my house as we all were for most of my year as president. Um, I spoke to more than 60,000 people from my house um, because instead of hopping on and off of airplanes, I just said yes to every speech that I was um, offered to give. And so we ended up having a greater impact than probably any other ABA president, just if you looked at sheer numbers um, of people that we, um, that we were able to touch. And finally, I would say a deeply important thing that we did was to be there both for our nation during this COVID crisis and for the lawyers of America. We put together task forces around um, the unmet legal needs that were uh, apparent and increasing during the course of the pandemic, be it domestic violence issues, be it benefits issues, um, or most recently, the eviction crisis about which we had been warning um, folks for a very long time and had the chance to work with the White House uh, on issues relating um, to eviction. So I was very proud to see that we could help our communities, but we also help lawyers. Uh, We had a, a terrific and have a terrific task force called Practice Forward which addresses all of the challenges that lawyers face, whether they're solo practitioners or whether they're in big firms um, as they try to practice remotely or partly remotely and all of the issues that flow from that. 
with a particular eye to the truth that women, and particularly women with children in our profession, have suffered significantly more during the COVID crisis than uh, our male colleagues. So putting together some practices and policies and procedures that can help women, particularly, as I said, women with children in this challenging time. So that's just a summary of some of the things that uh, the wonderful American Bar Association was able to do for lawyers and for our communities during what was for sure a very challenging year. Trish, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on the topics we've touched upon in this podcast. Where could they go? Best place to go is www.americanbar.org, which is the ABA website. Um, I will, uh, with a little bit of a wink, say that the good stuff is behind a paywall. So if you, if you really want the good stuff and you're not an ABA member, you're going to need to join. But there's tons of publicly available information on that website that can guide um, anyone who's interested in learning more about these topics. Well, Trish, like I said at the start, this has been a long overdue podcast. I can't thank you enough, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks, Tom. It was great to be with you. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. We got a new great podcast out on the Compliance Podcast Network called Epi Argentina. This is based upon a book by Greg Greenberg, who is my co-host for this new podcast. And we take a look at stories of exasperation in modern America. If you're exasperated, this is the podcast for you effing Argentina on the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you'll join me again next week for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.